Let's open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. It's a real joy and a privilege for us to be here. We always enjoy coming here and and uh, the hospitality of the believers here and letting us use the house and the van while we're here. It's just a, just a real blessing and a joy and, and uh, look forward to the times we'll have not only here but with the young people and with the soccer group if that ever opens up again these weeks. So uh, thank you again in advance. First uh, Samuel chapter four is um, is one of the chapters in the Bible that is just really sad. And there are certain portions of the Word of God that we read that rejoice our hearts, that encourage us, and there's other portions that we read that just break our heart when we see the people of God and how they behave in the midst of the goodness and the kindness and the love of the Lord. And yet, uh, there's lessons here for us to learn, right? Uh, Corinthians tells us that these things aren't just little Sunday school stories to tell our children, but there's great lessons for us to learn. Uh, That these things are written for our learning, for our example, that we might not fall into the same um, patterns or the same uh, traps and, and pitfalls that the nation of Israel fell into. And uh, it's just a sad time in their history. So First Samuel chapter 4, we're going to read the entire chapter. That's the most important thing that will be said this morning will be these 22 verses that we read. This is the word of God. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines pitched in Aphek. The Philistines put themselves in array against Israel, and when they joined in battle, Israel was smitten before the Philistines. They slew the army in the field about 4,000 men. When the people were coming to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Wherefore hath the Lord smitten us today before the Philistines? Let us fetch the ark of the covenant of the Lord out of Shiloh unto us, that when it cometh unto us, it may save us out of the hand of of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh, they might bring from thence the ark of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, which dwelt between the cherubims, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. When the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout, so the earth rang again. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What meaneth the noise of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews? They understood the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, and the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe unto us, for there hath not been such a thing heretofore. Woe unto us, who shall deliver us out of the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods that smote the Egyptians and all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and quit yourselves like men, O ye Philistines, that ye be not servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Quit yourselves like men. And fight. And the Philistines fought, and Israel was smitten, and they fled every man into his tent. And there was a great, very great slaughter, for there fell the, of Israel thirty thousand footmen. The ark of God was taken, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were slain. And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army, and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with the earth upon his head. And when he came to Eli, he sat upon a seat by the wayside watching. For his heart trembled for the ark of God. When the man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. And when Eli heard the noise of the crying, he said, What meaneth this noise of this tumult? 
And the man came in hastily and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety and eight years old, and his eyes were dim that he could not see. The man said unto Eli, I am he that came out of the army, and I fled today out of the army. He said, What is there done, my son? The messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been so great, also a great slaughter among the people, and thy two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God is taken. And it came to pass, when he made mention of the ark of God, that he fell off from the seat backward by the side of the gate, and his neck break, and he died. He was an old man and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. And his daughter-in-law, Phineas's wife, was with child, near to be delivered. And when she heard the tidings about the ark of, that the ark of God was taken, that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and travailed, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman that stood by her said unto her, Fear not, for thou hast born a son. But she answered not, neither did she regard it. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory is departed from Israel, because the ark of God was taken because her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory is departed from Israel, for the ark of God is taken. What a sad, sad time. Um, it starts out the chapter with saying that the word came to Samuel. We know that that word was a reaffirmation of the prophecy that had come, and by, come to Samuel uh, concerning his family, concerning his sons, concerning the sins of his sons and the wickedness of their hearts, and that judgment was going to come on them because of their wicked ways. And so this word comes to Israel, and Israel goes out against the Philistines to fight in a battle. Now, it's interesting because uh, the Philistines uh, is a type, a type of the enemy within uh, in our individual lives, it's a type of the flesh of the old man, that enemy that indwells every single one of us. You know, we've got a we've got a spy in every one of our hearts, a spy, a uh, 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 part of us that is perfectly aligned with Satan and with his devices and with the world and its ways and its desires. Uh, it's the flesh. It's the old man. It's the old nature that still is within us that is not going to be eradicated until that day when we're finally taken out of this world, either through death or the rapture. But in the interim, it's still here. It's like when the children of Israel came into the land, uh, God gave them great victory over the Canaanite people, but he allowed some of those individual pockets of resistance all throughout the land, and he did it that they might be tested. Uh, he didn't totally eradicate them. He could have, and he would have. But he didn't so that Israel might be tested. And, and, you know, God could have eradicated the flesh the day he saved us, couldn't he? He could have done that. But he allowed it to remain in us that he might test us. Um, that we might um, make a decision moment by moment, day by day, which are we going to give into? We're going to give into the flesh or we're going to give into to the spirit? Are we going to walk in the flesh or are we going to walk in the spirit? And the battle rages in every one of us, doesn't it? We'll talk about that more in just a moment. But that's what the Philistines, that's what they typify. Um, In the church as a whole, it's the enemy within. It's the tares mixed among the wheat. It's the the, um, wolves mixed among the lambs. But beyond that, it's, it's just the selfish nature in every one of us that wants our way. Um... We don't want brown carpet. We want blue carpet, right? We don't want the walls to be painted green. We don't want to be painted yellow. 
You see? And there's, I've seen more assemblies divide over silly, ridiculous things like that than over doctrine. <laughs> Just over fleshly, I've got to have it my way or I'm the highway, right? I'm heading out of here if I don't get it my way. And again, it's not because we're standing on the truth of God's word. It's just that's what it is. And it's that enemy that's within that divides the body of Christ. And uh, we've got to be careful that we don't allow my own selfish ambitions or desires, uh, wanting to take that place of preeminence in the assembly, the predominant place, uh, and uh, in that way divide the brethren. The Lord hates that. (laughs) Now, if we divide over doctrine, the Lord says that he came to bring a sword, right? There's going to be division over doctrine, right? In other words, if someone came in here and began to teach that Jesus wasn't always God, or he wasn't always the Son of God, or he wasn't whatever, there'd be division over that, right? I hope so. I hope there would be people that stand up and say, hold a minute, that's not going to fly here, right? And that's just one thing. There's a lot of things like that taught in God's Word that we take a stand on. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about personal preferences, right? Personal preferences. That's what the Philistines um, typify. Um, They met at a place called Ebenezer. And it's interesting that this place wasn't called Ebenezer yet. Uh, It was actually uh, Mizpah. And um, Ebenezer was actually the name given to it in chapter 7 of this book. When they finally get the victory over the Philistines and Samuel sets up a rock, a stone, and calls it Ebenezer. And Ebenezer means uh, the stone of help. God is our help. Uh, In this chapter, they try in their own energy, according to their own devices, according to their own wisdom, to defeat the Philistines. And they fail miserably. But finally, in chapter 7, they, they repent and fall on their faces before the Lord. And they allow the Lord to give them the victory. And that's when they call the place Ebenezer. The Lord is our help. Um, the Lord is our, our stone of help. Mitzpah, it's interesting. Um, Mitzpah was the place that the children of Israel gathered to uh, when they got ready to fight back in the book of Judges. Uh, the book of Judges, of course, is characterized by, by four reoccurring events. The children of Israel uh, rebel against God and they go out and serve other gods. God, God brings discipline into their lives and usually brings one of, the, of these foreign nations into to control at least part of Israel. And then the people repent and the Lord restores them. And then they go through that cycle over and over again. That's, that's the book of Judges. And so it's a, it's a very ungodly period in Israel's history. And it's characterized by this thought that's mentioned three times, that there was... No king in Israel, and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Well, there was a king in Israel, wasn't there? Right? And later on in this, in this book, they reject that king. And the king was the Lord. And they want a king like the other nations, right? But there was no king in Israel, and everybody just did what was right in his own eyes. Just did what he thought was right. And there was great anarchy and confusion in the nation. That's in contrast to in the book of Joshua, the gathering point was, and, and, and Mitzpah means watchtower. Um, it, they met in, in the book of Joshua. They always came back when they would, they would fight, go out and fight battles, and they would come back to a place called Gilgal. Gilgal was the place that they came to when they first came across the Jordan River before they attacked Jericho. And Gilgal means rolling. My kids, when they were young, one of the songs that we taught them was Rolled Away, right? Rolled Away, Rolled Away, Rolled Away, My Sins, Rolled You know, all that. we all know that song, right? Anyway, um, 
And in there, there's a great rolling away. Remember when they first came over the Jordan River, that's when they circumcised all those people that were born in the desert because they didn't circumcise anybody for 40 years. Uh, that's where the manna stopped falling down from heaven. They began to eat in the land. And, and they, they, they uh, um, had the sacrifice of the Passover again. It was a wonderful time. But they, God rolled away the reproach that had been on them for 40 years because of their unbelief, because of their their not trusting God to do what he promised them to do. I want to say this morning, and you might be here today and, and not know where you're going to spend eternity, but I'll tell you, there's only one sin that God will not forgive. Unbelief. That's it. I tell people, heaven's going to be filled with sinners, and hell's, heaven's going to be filled with sinners, and hell's going to be filled with believers. Right? Everybody in hell's going to be a believer, just too late. And heaven's going to be filled with sinners redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, right? Isn't that a wonderful thought? You know, that's the truth. And so um, that's the only sin that God will not forgive is a sin of unbelief. And we as believers got to be careful. I think that today I, I call, I say this in Spanish, you know, somos una iglesia de creyentes incredulos. We're, we're a church of believing unbelievers, you know, or unbelieving believers, I guess that's the way to say it. Because we trust God for salvation, but we don't trust him for our daily needs, do we? Right? We don't walk by faith, and yet the word of God says, the just shall live by faith. If God can save me, he certainly can take care of me. Right? The hardest thing he did in my life was saving me. The rest of it is downhill from there. So, you've got to trust the Lord. Just He's in control, and let him drive. Let him drive the bus, you know. Let him fly the airplane. Trust in him. So they met at this place, Ebenezer, which had been with Mizpah. And again, it just characterized their, they were still walking in that same pattern, in that same lifestyle that they lived during the time of the judges. It hadn't really changed very much. In fact, Eli was not the last judge. He was the second last judge. Samuel was the last judge in Israel. But Eli was a judge for 40 years. And that's how long the Philistines had been in control. And it just... What a picture it is to us, because Eli, although he was a man who loved the Lord, there's no doubt in my mind about that, but he was also a man who was very given over to the flesh. And he he indulged his sons and allowed them, not only allowed them, but participated in the sins of his sons. And we know that because he's a fat man, wasn't he? And one of the things that his son did, you go back to chapter 2, one of the things that they did, not only did they go and why the the meat was still... Uh, still in the pot cooking, they would go with that three hook and pull out the meat. They pulled out the best, right? Not the portion that was supposed to be theirs, but they pulled out the best. And also they took the meat before the fat been cut away because the fat was the Lord's, right? That's, that's, that's the richness, the fullness, the flavorful part. I mean, the meat, what gives it the flavor is the fat, right? And so when you eat a lot of fat, you get like me, you get fat. So, you know, it's fat, fat. You know, fat causes fat. So, but, and that's, and Eli was a fat man. He was a fat man. And so he knew what his sons were doing, but not only did he know what his sons were doing, he indulged them and he allowed them to do it, but he also participated in what they were doing. And that's enough. We'll get back to when we get to, when we get to verse 18. We'll talk a little bit more about that. But this is what this, this is what the status, the, 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 the condition of the children of Israel were at this time. And it's a sad condition. And God's judgment comes upon him. And so when they go to fight uh, the Philistines, the Philistines were at Aphek. Um, and that just means, um, it was, means fortress. So here were the Israelites. Um, the, the Philistines were fortified. The Philistines were, were dug in. The Philistines were prepared to fight. And the children of Israel thought they were, but they weren't. 
Because again, instead of relying on the Lord, they relied on their own strength. And that's the problem with Israel today, right? We, what we need to pray for Israel, they get saved. That's the main thing, right? And that the, the prime minister of Israel gets saved because uh, secular Israel is a very ungodly nation. It really is, isn't it, brother? It's a go- ungodly. Many of the Jews are atheists. I mean, in, in essence, they don't believe anything about God. Uh, very secular. And wouldn't it be a wonderful day when Christ comes back and all true Israel will get saved? What a day that's going to be. You know, all true Israel, all true sons of Abraham are going to get saved that day out of every tribe of the children of Israel. What a wonderful day that's going to be at the end of the tribulation period. But this was the truth that when they came to fight the Philistines, they were dug in. And that day when they fought them, 4,000 men died. 4,000 men. What? I mean, when we have battles today and we have, we have men die, even during the Civil War, 4,000 men, that was a tremendous amount of men that died that day. And so what should have caused, what should have happened in the children of Israel, what they should have done was go back and fall on their faces before God and repent in fasting and prayer and say, Lord, why did this happen? What do you want us to do? But that's not what they did. What they did was they gathered together and they say, what we need to do is, in verse uh, 3, they say, go fetch the ark that it comes among us that it might save us. They were using the ark like a good luck charm, you know. I remember growing up, um, you all know I was, grew up as a Roman Catholic and, and we were scapulas. Okay, we'd wear these things with little pictures on them where we wear a medal around our, our neck of some saint, Christopher or somebody else. And, and we'd actually hold on to that and rub and pray. And, you know, we'd do those kind of things or with a rosary or whatever. And, and, and we were trusting that, you know, we're, we're gonna, we're, that, that's going to take care of me, right? Um, huh. It wasn't the ark that was going to save them. It was the one that dwelt between the cherubim on the ark that would save them. (laughs) That's who would save them. But their trust was in the object, right? It'll save us. It'll get us out of this difficulty. And so many times as people, we put our trust in so many other things. And yet it's the Lord that's the one that is able to get us through. He's the one that's able to save us from the greatest enemy we have. You know what's the greatest enemy that I have? Isn't the devil. It's not the world. The greatest enemy I have is me. Right? That's the greatest enemy that I have. Because Satan can't get me to do anything. He can't force me. He can tempt me, but he can't force me. The world can tempt me, but he can't force me. But my old fleshly nature, it has great influence in my life. And it raises up its ugly head constantly. Constantly. And that's the greatest enemy I have is me. Is me. And when I feel that's the only one I've got to blame. Um, so they trust the, the their their their... This object, and again, it was it was a good thing. There wasn't anything wrong with the ark. It was something that God had given them, something that God had established. But they were putting their trust in it. I, I forgot to say, you know, they were in in uh, bondage to the Philistines for forty years. The number forty is a number of testing, a number of testing, and God was testing them. And God, you know, sometimes allows us to be tested, doesn't He? And he tests us not because he wants us to fail. Satan tempts us because he wants us to fail. But God tests us that he might strengthen us and that it might prove where our trust really is in ourselves, in something else, or in him. Trust in the Lord with all thy heart. That's what he tells us to do. Just trust in him. 
Right? Just just relax and cast your cares upon Him because He cares for us. Don't be anxious about anything because by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, we let our request be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which goes beyond any human ability to comprehend or understand, will guard, garrison our minds, garrison about, guard our hearts and our minds through the Lord Jesus Christ. What a wonderful thought. We don't have to care and cast ourselves on our own energy and strength and wisdom. We cast ourselves on Him. And as much as you love yourself and as much as I love myself, you know there's somebody that loves me more, and that's the Lord Jesus. Isn't that wonderful to think? He is more invested and cares more about me than even I care about myself. And I can trust Him to know He's always going to do right. He always does what's best. Um, so, um, the, the, uh, the children of Israel, they, um, they first of all, they um, they blame God. They say, "Wherefore the Lord smit us today before the Philistines?" They blame God. <laughs> Don't we do that so often in our lives? Things happen in our lives, and we get we ask we question God. God, why are you doing this to me? God, why are you letting this happen? That's easy to do. That's what the flesh loves to do. But yet, what does he say? I mean, this is a great verse. Okay, in James. Count it all joy. We encounter various trials, knowing that testing of your faith produces patience, and let patience have its perfect result. Why? That you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. When I think my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was perfected through suffering, now he was always perfect. I'm not trying to in any way diminish from the person and character and and power of the Lord Jesus, but how he's perfected. He was perfected in the sense that he experienced suffering. So why? He could be that great high priest that is able to succor for us. Now, we don't use that word succor very often. We use it in Spanish all the time. It just means help. He's able to help us, right? He went through times of difficulty and trial. He suffered so many things in this world before he ever went to the cross. Loneliness, hunger, fear, uh, all these things. Not fear, I don't mean fear. I mean, um, well, Luther said no man feared death like he did, right? And, and what, I, I, what he meant by that was nobody hated death more than he did, right? Nobody desired not to die more than he did, right? Because he knew it was going to entail. He was going to have to be uh, forsaken of, the, of God for three hours on that cross, something he'd never known or would ever know again. And he went through all that stuff, and he was made that perfect, complete high priest through suffering. Well, if he needed that to be made perfect, how much more do I need suffering to be made perfect, right? And let me tell you this. Isn't it a wonderful thing, our medical system we have in here in America? Uh, Because when you go to the doctor and you have an operation, they give you anesthesia. When we were in Spain, uh, one of our children, I think it was Josiah, was it Josiah was going to get his tonsils taken out? Yeah. And, And in Spain at that time, they didn't give the kids anesthesia. They just went in there and grabbed them with a pair of pliers and cut them out. You know, just jerked them out. That was all he did. So we brought a child over here. He got his tonsils taken out here in America. But anyway, um, that's what they did. And they they said, well, they're afraid that, you know, he would choke on his blood and all that. So, yeah. Well, I'm glad they give anesthesia because, you know what, to get cut hurts, right? And so for the Lord to cut away the flesh, the one thing he doesn't do, he doesn't give us anesthesia. It hurts. It hurts. But the end result is wonderful, isn't it? The end result is fantastic. And so we count it all joy even when we come in trouble. We don't blame the Lord. We don't, we don't cast our... Because we know the Lord cares for us. We know that the Lord has a perfect design and plan and that He's doing all these things in our lives. It tells us in Romans chapter 8, so that He might bring us in conformity to the image and likeness of His dear Son, the Lord Jesus. That's the purpose that He has for all of us. 
So the people send to Shiloh, and they bring the ark. Um, Shiloh is a, is, a, is a wonderful thing. The word Shiloh just means peace. And, and Shiloh wasn't just a place. Shiloh was a person. You go back to Genesis chapter, just, just look real quick, Genesis 49.10. This is the, the prophecy of Isaac concerning his, uh, not Isaac, I mean Jacob, concerning his 12 sons, Israel concerning his 12 sons. And he's talking about Judah, the blessing for Judah. Here's what he says in Isaiah chapter, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh come. And unto him shall the gathering of the people be. Shiloh is not just a place. Shiloh is a person. And it's talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that brings peace, isn't he? He's the one that brings So, So here's, here's the beautiful picture. Well, it's not a beautiful picture, but here's the picture here. They go to Shiloh, that place that represents the person of Christ, that, that Prince of Peace. We were talking about him earlier. That one that brings peace, not only to us when we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, the peace that we have now with God that we didn't have before, but, but even a peace within our own hearts and a peace among others. Uh, the brethren, we have a peace because of him. So, so uh, it's not only that they take it from that place of peace that speaks about the Lord Jesus. They rob the ark from it. They take it out, the ark of the covenant. Now, you remember there was three things in the ark in this time. Later on, there's only one thing left. But this time, there's three things in the ark. You know what they were? They were the, the, the tablets, the two, the two tablets of the law. And then there was the, also the, there was a, a container uh, uh, of the manna from the wilderness, and then there was the bud, uh, I mean the uh, the rod of Aaron that budded. And all three of those things speak about the Lord Jesus, don't they? He was the fulfillment of the law. He was the true bread that came down from heaven. And he was that one that was dead, but it was alive forevermore, right? That stick that they, Aaron's stick was dead. Put it before the Lord and the budded, brought forth not only flowers, but fruit. <laughs> and in one day, and that speaks of the Lord Jesus Christ in his, he was dead, but now he's alive. He rose from the dead. So all those things. So they brought, here it is, this, this beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. He is the Ark of the Covenant. He is the true Ark, right? He is that, that place where the glory of God was manifested. John would say, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. He was the manifestation of the glory of God in the world. He was God manifest to us, God given to us in, in human form. And they took this beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus and they robbed it out. Now, the Lord could have stopped them, right? A little bit later in, in, this, in 2 Samuel, when they go to bring the ark back to, or they go to bring the ark to Jerusalem, David comes to bring it back. They, they follow the pattern of the Philistines in chapter 5 and they put it on a, on a cart and it's going along on this cart and one of the men that was there, uh, Yuza, touches the, the Ark of the Covenant, to, he thought it was going to fall. Of course, it wasn't going to fall, but he thought it was. So he, I'm, going to, I'm going to hold this thing up. You watch me. And, and what happened? He died. Immediately, he, he was dead. Huh. So if the Lord wanted to stop this, he could have stopped it, couldn't he? He could have prevented them from taking the Ark and taking it there and using it as a good luck charm. And not only did he use it as a good luck charm, he knew it was going to take place because they lost the battle. And not only did they lose the battle, they lost the Ark. And the Philistines took it. And uh, talk about that more in just a second. But they took it back with them. And you know, he, could, he could have prevented but he didn't. And he asked yourself, why? And to me, it's such a beautiful picture of the Lord Jesus. God allowed sinful man to take the Lord Jesus Christ and abuse him. 
spit in his face, mock him, laugh at him, beat him to the place where he didn't even look like a man. Rip his back open with a whip. Rip out his beard. We can't even begin to imagine the abuse that the Lord took at the hands of sinful men. And then they crucified him. And God could have stopped that at any time. The Lord Jesus said in the garden, I can call down myriads of angels right now and destroy everyone. He didn't even need to do that. He could have spoken a word and all those men would have, would have died, right? He spoke a word and they all fell backwards, right? Fell back on their backs. When he just said, I'm him, right? He said, Jehovah is what he really said, right? <laughs> they said, we're looking for, for Jesus. Jehovah, I'm him. I am. And boom, they fell backwards. Well, he could have said his word and they'd all been destroyed. But he didn't. He allowed himself to be shamed. He allowed himself to suffer because he had a greater purpose in mind. And the Lord allowed this to take place. He allowed the ark to be taken, not only by the the children of Israel, out to that place, but he allowed the Philistines to take take the ark and and put it in the, the temple of their god, Dagon. And you'll find out about that maybe next week, right? Is that you going to do chapter 5 next week? Is that right? Yeah, I guess so, right? Yeah, I think so. Anyway, find about that in chapter 5. So the ark comes into the camp. And uh, the children of Israel, big shout. Hey, yo, all right now, we're going to win because the ark is here, right? The ark is here with us. And uh, uh, the the Philistines... Um, you know, they didn't say because the Lord's with us. They said because the ark is with us, right? The ark of the covenant of the Lord's with us. The Philistines hear this great shout and they start shaking in their boots. They're gods among them, right? And these are the same, and they call him gods, Elohim, but they didn't mean one God in uh, three and one. They meant th- different gods, you know? And so they said they're gods. These are the gods that destroyed the Egyptians and did all these wonderful things, bringing the children of Israel out, of the, out through the wilderness and, and into the land. What are we going to do? Isn't it interesting, though, that what the leaders of the Philistines tell their troops are is, okay, guys, it's time to man up, right? We, we Be men. I mean, that's what quits you like me to me. Just be men. Man up. Right? Don't be wimps. Don't be, what was it? Schwarzenegger called them, don't be girly men. Right? Be men. Real men. Because, listen guys, it's, it's, the, the, the stock, the, 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 it's stacked against us here. I mean, we, we, we're gonna probably lose this battle if we don't, if we don't just really fight hard. And, and so, it's interesting that the Ark of the Covenant coming to the, to, among the children of Israel backfired on them. Instead of, instead of causing them to win the battle and for them to be encouraged and go out and fight stronger, it, it really encouraged the Philistines to fight stronger. Don't we fall in that trap sometimes? You see, what the children of Israel wanted was they wanted their way and they wanted God to put a stamp of approval on their, what they wanted done. Right? When they were seeking the Lord's face and say, Lord, we want to approve. We want to agree with what you want us to do. No, we've got this plan in mind, and we want you to put your stamp of approval and to bless us because this is what we want to do. And we've got to be careful that we don't do the same thing. Sometimes we can do things, and the motive can be, I mean, there wasn't anything wrong with their motive. They wanted to destroy the Philistines. God, God wanted that too. It wasn't that their motive wasn't right. It's their methodology. They're, 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 they were doing it in their own way. Um, and in their for their own purposes, for their own plans. 
you know, um, George Mueller, when he would ever seek the Lord's will, he would ask himself three questions. First of all, is it God's will? And he would study and pray about it. And when he determined it was God's will, then he would say, am I God's man to do it? Because it might be God's will, but maybe we have somebody else in mind to do this thing. He's prepared to equip somebody else for it. When he determined it was God's will and it was, he was the man to do it, he would say, is it God's timing? Is this when God wants it done? Because sometimes God wants something done, but it's not his time, right? He wanted to save us, right? He wanted, to, he wanted the Lord Jesus Christ to suffer and die. But the children of Israel tried to kill him several times, but it wasn't the Lord's timing yet, right? In the fullness of time, he, he, he died on the cross for us. And so we've got to be careful. Sometimes we can say, let's do this program or let's do this activity. And, and we, in our own hearts and minds, again, as believers, we want to do it for the glory of God, but we do it in our own way. And we ask the Lord to put a stamp of approval on it. Rather than humbling ourselves before the Lord and say, Lord, what do you want us to do and how do you want us to do it and when do you want us to do it? Got to be careful about that. Well, the Philistines won a great battle and 30,000 men died. Not 4,000, 30,000 men died that day. A greater defeat than the day before. A greater tragedy takes place. But not only that, but these two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, die, and the Ark of the Covenant is taken by the Philistines. Now, let me just say this. Isn't it interesting? In the beginning of every dispensation, there is a stronger, more rapid punishment for sin than as a dispensation goes along. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Um, When, in the beginning of the dispensation of law... The two sons of Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, offered strange fire to the Lord, and the fire came out, and they were immediately killed. Boom, that was it. They were over with. At the beginning of the dispensation of grace, um, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Spirit of God, saying, well, we sold our property for this, but really they sold it for something else. And the, the Lord, they died right away. If, if the Lord put the same uh, standard on us today, how many of us would still be around, Right? And if he had put the same standard on the time when, when Samuel and Eli and the sons of Eli were there, Hophni and Phinehas wouldn't have been alive then. They would have been t- the Lord would have taken them a long time ago. But as time goes along, his graciousness, his kindness, his long-suffering, he begins to allow certain things, not because he agrees with them, but because he allows them to take place. And so we can't just say today, well, the Lord, you know, if the Lord really didn't want this to happen, he'd judge us. Well, not necessarily. Because sometimes the Lord lets us do certain things, certain activities that he's not, he's not in agreement with, but he allows them because of his grace towards us. So let's make sure we get back to the word. And that's what we really need to do today, brethren. Get back to the word of God. What the church of Jesus Christ needs today, not just the assemblies, but the church of Jesus Christ today needs to repent. We need to repent. We need to get down on our faces before God and humble ourselves before the Lord and just say, Lord, we have sinned greatly against you. We have committed spiritual adultery against you. We have turned away from the truth, the simplicity of Scripture, and we do things today that just simply after the wisdom and after the practices of the world and man and the flesh. We're just doing our own way. And we need to humble ourselves. There, if we're going to have revival in the last days before Christ comes back uh, and takes the church out, which I believe is going to happen today. I don't know the date, but I know the day. It's going to happen today, right? I don't know the date, but it can't happen yesterday. It can't happen tomorrow. It's going to happen today. 
Might be, the, what's the date today? The 18th, right? Might happen the 18th of April, but it might not happen until the 18th of April next year. I don't know. But I know the day. We've got to live our days like this is it. This is it. And if we're going to have revival among the Lord's people, we've got to fall on our faces and not just do it because, well, that's what we think needs to be done, but we do it because we're really broken before the Lord and we confess the sin of the church. Daniel and Nehemiah never participated in the sins of the people of Israel, and yet when they confessed, they confessed the sins of the people as if they were their own. We have sinned. We have done this thing because they're so closely identified with the Lord and His people. And so the ark is taken... This man comes back, this man of Benjamin comes back and goes to Shiloh and tells what took place not only to the people there, but to Eli. And when Eli hears that his two sons were killed, but most importantly, when he hears that the Ark of the Covenant had been taken, uh, he falls over backwards and dies. Uh, dies with a, um, a broken neck. It's significant. One brother I was reading about pointed out that... Um, when Eli died of a broken neck, that was the the death of an unredeemed donkey. In Exodus chapter thirteen, verse thirteen, what I'm mean, just sad. Here was this man who was given such great privilege and such great opportunity. He was a priest, he was a judge, and yet he dies the death of an unredeemed donkey. It's so sad. There's men that start out well and that end up so poorly, so absolutely sad their lives. I love my children. I have five children. I've got seven grandchildren. And I love my children. I'd give, I give anything to my children. I'd I, I, I give my life. I'd suffer for my children. I have suffered for my children. But you know, brethren, it tells us in Matthew and Luke both that if we love our families, if we love our wives, our children, our our own lives more than we love the Lord Jesus, we're not worthy to be his disciples. He says in Mark chapter 12 and verse 30 that, quoting this portion when he's asked, what's the greatest commandment? He says, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, with all thy strength. That's 100%. So you ask yourself, well, if if I give 100% of my love to the Lord Jesus, how much of a percent do I have for my wife? Anybody know? Zero, right? How much do I have for my children? Zero. How much do I have for my brethren, for my neighbor, for my... Zero. So if I'm going to obey the Lord, I give him all my love, 100% of my love, i got nothing left for anybody else. But he tells me, love your wife, Right? Love your children, love your neighbor, love your brethren, love, the, love your enemies. So I've got to come to the Lord and say, well, Lord, I give 100% of love to you. That leaves none for them, but you tell me to do that. So what am I going to do? Well, here's the answer. Just be a channel of the Lord's love, right? Say, Lord, you love all those people through me. Because I'll tell you, I love my wife. She's so precious to me, but the Lord loves her more than I do, Right? And his love is perfect. His love never fails. It doesn't diminish one iota. There might be times when I don't feel as loving towards her as other times, but the Lord never does that. His his love is consistent. Right? It's, it's, It's totally unconditional. Mine's not. I'd love for it to be, but it's not. I've got to be honest with you. And so what I got to do, the Lord, Lord, you let me be a channel. Let me be a conduit. Let me just be a pipe that your love 
just flows towards my wife, towards my children, towards the brethren, towards my... You've got to do that through me because I've got nothing left. I give it all to you. And you know what? The pipe, when it's like your arteries, you know, if it gets clogged up. So in other words, if I get some of my own flesh and my own love in there, it kind of stops the Lord from giving His love, right? Because it doesn't flow perfectly. But that's the answer. And Eli's problem was he loved his children and he put his children above the Lord. And I know brethren have done that, have divided assemblies because they put their children above the Lord. Their children should have been disciplined because of sin. And they wouldn't do it because, well, it's my son, it's my daughter, it's my wife, it's my brother, it's my brother-in-law. I can't, I can't discipline because, because they're family. Well, in, the, in the assembly, we're all family, right? <laughs> we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And when discipline has to take place, it has to begin with the house of God. We've got, we've got to judge the things here, and we've got to discipline with the concept of discipline isn't, isn't to punish. The concept of discipline is to bring to repentance and back into fellowship. That's what discipline's all about. Not to hurt somebody, it's to help them. It's not to show them how much we dislike them, it's to show them how much we love them. I, I spank my kids, and I, I don't... I hope if it offends you, okay, it offends you, but... I, didn't, I don't apologize to anybody for that. I welled the tar out of my kids when they needed it, right? I spanked their bottoms when they needed it. But it's because I loved them. And I wanted them to know what was right and wrong. So we need sometimes in the assembly. And he would not discipline his children. He would not correct his sons. He would not stand up to them and say, you're not going to do this. He let them do what they wanted and he participated in it. So the book ends. That's a little bit after quarter, but give me give me two more minutes. We'll finish this because you, you got to do this part right. Phineas's wife is about to give birth. Well, she's she, it's a little bit this premature. We don't know how much premature, but it's premature. And she hears this news of the death of her husband and of her father-in-law, and of the ark being taken. And she goes into labor and she brings forth a son. Which which for a, a mother in Israel, that was the greatest thing that she could possibly do was bring a son. Because the hope of every woman in Israel was, I'm going to give birth to the Messiah. That was the hope of all of them, right? That was the desire of Israel. All the Israelite women was, I might have the Messiah. And so when, when she gave forth this son, the women that were with her were like, what? in the midst of all this said day, you've given birth to a son. And she didn't even care anything about that. Didn't make her happy at all. She called his name Ichabod. And Ichabod means the glory has departed. What a sad day in Israel. The glory has departed. And sad to say, dear brethren, there's a lot of assemblies today that ought to have Ichabod written across the front door because the glory has departed. I talked to a brother one time and he said, talking about a particular assembly that he had been in fellowship and it was just dying, dying, dying on the vine. And he said, the only thing that's keeping this assembly going is just inertia. You know, there's no life there. You know, it was a half a dozen people that were just, they were going to stay there till the, with their, you know, their last little shaking arthritic hand, they were going to lock the door for the last time. That was it. There was no life there. The life in the assembly is the Lord Jesus, isn't it? Him having the place of preeminence, Him having the place of honor. We gather together not into a man or a system or a, a particular place or a building. We gather together unto the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's because he's here in our midst this morning that gives validity to this assembly, to this meeting. Ichabod was written across the door. There we go. Ichabod was written across the door. Ichabod was written across Israel. And it's a sad, sad, horrible day 
in the lives of the Israelites. Let's learn the lesson, brethren. Let's look at these things. Let's see their attitudes and actions and not just shake our heads and say, oh, those, those people, how can we believe? How do they even do those things? Let's examine our hearts individually and collectively and say, Lord, are we falling into the exact same traps? Are we doing the exact same things that these Israelites did? Lord, help us to repent and to turn away from it, that we don't suffer the same consequences that they suffered. Our Father and our God in heaven, we just thank you for these portions of your word. We, we know that if, if you wanted to just write to, to, to write things, you could have filled the world with volumes. In fact, John said if, if everything that the Lord Jesus did would have been written, the world couldn't contain all the, all the books that it would take. But yet you've given us this one simple little volume. And so everything that's in this book is not only important, but it's precious to you. It's, there's a, there's a, there is a, a purpose and a plan behind everything that you recorded by the Spirit uh, through these men. And so we know this story isn't just a little story for us to tell. There's a significance, a spiritual significance, lessons for us to learn, and we want to learn them. We don't want to just know the story. We want to know the, the, have the wisdom to understand how it applies to our lives individually as well as collectively in the assembly. And I pray that the dear brethren here would open their hearts and their minds. They would meditate on these things. They would examine their lives in the light of what we've seen today and what we've studied today. And they would say, oh, Lord, is there anything you want to communicate to me and anything you want me to change in my life in light of what we've seen today? Do a great work among us, Father. Don't just let us be hearers of the word. Let us be doers of it. Let us be effectual doers. Let us be men and women who have our hearts open and and humble before you. You can speak to us and do a great change in us. Father, let us leave this place not only not only challenged in our hearts, but changed in our hearts. For we pray you do all this because of your Son, because he deserves to receive the glory and the praise. He deserves to receive the work you want to do in us by the power of your Spirit today. We pray in his name. Amen. Thank you all so much. And again, apologize for going a little bit over.